0: I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network, presented by Interact. Canadians' eyes have never been so focused on the healthcare supply chain. We worry about personal protective equipment for healthcare and other workers, as well as supplies needed to increase our capacity to conduct lab testing so that we may safely reopen the economy. To get a better understanding of how healthcare supply chains work and how they can be improved, I'm joined today by Dr. Anne Soon. Dr. Snowden is a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business, Academic Chair of the World Health Innovation Network, and Scientific Director and CEO of Scan Health. Scan Health disseminates new knowledge and enables cross-jurisdiction learning to accelerate supply chain transformation across global health systems with funding from a network of centers of excellence grant. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Snowden.
1: I am absolutely delighted to join you today, Jody. Thank you for having me.
0: So supply chain infrastructure in health systems uh, is more than just about uh, bringing in gloves. It enables (laughs) the traceability of every care process and product used during care delivery. And then we can link uh, that information to patient outcomes to create real-world data, and evidence around what works and offers the best outcomes for Canadians and reduce risks of medical error. How might caring for the ill during this pandemic have looked differently had all provincial and territorial systems had advanced supply chain
1: systems? Uh, It's a great question, Jody. And the work we've been doing on supply chain for the last, I'd say five years, both on research and our global knowledge dissemination network has up until now really focused on what you just said, the tracking and tracing of what care are we delivering to whom with what products and are we achieving the best possible outcomes for every citizen globally uh, as it's a global network. Up until the pandemic, that was um, you know pretty important, but it didn't really have the profile. Uh, the COVID pandemic has really shone a very bright light on in terms of what is the role of supply chain infrastructure and health and safety of our health workforce and our Canadian citizens. And that's really where the supply chain strategies, as you suggest, if they were absolutely high-performing, what would that mean? That would mean that at every level of a health system, Canada-wide, the knowledge and awareness of a high-performing supply chain would be viewed as a critical strategic asset to make sure the best care possible is delivered whenever and wherever it's needed, despite the high jump in volumes or demands. It also means there's total system transparency so that at a moment's notice on a smartphone or a dashboard on a laptop, any system leader, whether it's the chief public health officer, it's the director of... Um, Um, emergency departments uh, in a health system or it's a provincial leader. A dashboard with real-time flow of data across the entire jurisdiction you are managing or leading, you would know what exactly you have in terms of PPE equipment like masks, gloves, face shields, etc., where that equipment is, where it needs to be distributed and moved to to meet the demands for what we call those hot spots, So a particular city, for example, like a Montreal who has a higher rate of cases than another city. And it also means you'd have a very clear indication of what we call burn rate. How quickly are we using each um, piece of or each product and therefore how how to prioritize sourcing new product to meet the demand or moving around existing product to make sure those who critically need it uh, have access to it. Because we do have some communities, some organizations, some jurisdictions that haven't had those high rates of COVID patients. And then we have other parts of our health systems, like long-term care, who I don't think we really thought about in terms of making sure they had the PPE equipment and staffing and and education to manage uh, what we're now seeing in our uh, elderly citizens. So a high-performing supply chain means 100% transparency flow of real-time data so leaders have all of the data they need on a minute-by-minute basis to make decisions, and a secure pipeline of product from multiple and different sources uh, that, are, that are the right products. They're not counterfeit. They're not coming out of you know a paper bag somewhere uh, that are needed to protect every health worker uh, in every health system.
0: You've been quite vocal about the quality of Alberta's supply chain infrastructure. You mm-hmm. said yeah, that they've invested in a consolidated system where the procurement team can track and trace every product across the entire system. They have those lines of sight that you just mentioned into how mm-hmm. much stock they have, and mm-hmm. importantly, how much will be needed as volume yeah. shifts and turns. And this proactive team began sourcing products in December. Right, December. Yeah, that's just uh, you know remarkable, and and really needs to be celebrated. But that's Alberta. Where right. do the other provinces and territories stand?
1: Uh, it's a good question. The variability is absolutely massive. Uh, Ontario is an example. Uh, it is a province, a very, a larger province in population, of course. So many more health organizations to worry about, but with absolutely no centralized or connected network. If it's not a centralized model, then the alternative is a connected network, so that every organization, whether you're a long-term care facility, a residential home, a group home, or a hospital, is all working from the same set of accurate real-time information. Um, So the variability is as wide as this geography uh, in our country. Um, There are health systems that would say we are completely flying blind. There are other health systems that says, you know, we had a good supply chain system, but we never thought about having to track and supply masks instead of 200,000 masks a week in a particular province, ramping up to 600,000 masks a day. We never contemplated that. Our system actually never thought about making sure we had the suppliers' relationships so that when we need rapid scale up in demand, we would have access to them. So uh, I would say across every one of the 10 provinces and three territories, there's a different model. There's a In some, the models are very underdeveloped. In others, like Alberta, very highly developed. Uh, Data infrastructure is one of the key pieces that is almost completely missing uh, in some provinces. So many, many of those provinces with no data infrastructure have teams in every organization, two to three people every day, manually counting how many N95 masks do we have, how many other you know, surgical type masks do we have and how quickly are we using them? So the manual counting, entering data on Excel, so you can imagine the time, the hours, and the delay in understanding what do we have, what, where, what do we need, and where do we need to make sure those hotspots are well supplied, is just completely missing. In Alberta, that just isn't the case. Alberta has that very robust digital infrastructure, it has a very sophisticated supplier network that can absolutely supply that demand and rapid uptake in surge of cases when it's needed and um, delivered and distributed to every organization in the province who needs it. So what the real legacy, I think, one of the many legacies of COVID-19 is to, that has really shone a light on why is a supply chain infrastructure And a highly digitized, automated supply chain infrastructure is so important. And in fact, it makes the difference between really being able to deliver the best possible care to those who need it. And to prevent transmission to our most vulnerable populations like our elderly or people in, in other care facilities.
0: Do other health systems outside of Canada have digitized and automated supply chains? You, you mentioned that Scan Health is global. It's about yes. learning from other jurisdictions.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the variability globally is just as high as we're seeing it in Canada. So, this is not unique to Canada. Um, Scan Health reaches across uh, multiple countries and continents. So, Australia, throughout the US. Uh, England, Denmark, uh, Netherlands, just to name a few. Every one of those countries, I will be—I could, you know, almost create a map of the systems. Some, I would say, relatively few, maybe about 20% of these health systems have, to some degree, that data infrastructure, that real-time dashboard that tells you exactly how many you have, where you have them, and where you need them. Um, The majority do not. And uh, up until now, it has not been an area most health systems have invested in. And likely because they just didn't realize how critical this supply chain infrastructure is in terms of literally saving lives. So I, um, I think this is an important time for learning. You know, never waste a crisis, as some would say. And sometimes our lessons learned are hard. We learned in SARS many important public health lessons that I think have stood Canada very well. They have really um, contributed to some very strong public health responses. During SARS, Of interest, interestingly, we didn't have um, such a heavy reliance on China manufacturers to supply products. Many health systems globally have shared that, you know, and during SARS at that time, we had we had suppliers across many geographies. So if one geography uh, was quarantined, like happened in China, then then we had other options. That's no longer the case now. Some would say seventy percent. Some would say ninety percent of supplies are coming from uh, China based manufacturers. So when China shut down so too did the pipeline and sources of products that every country desperately needed very, very quickly. So another piece of this is really asking the question about single sourcing reliance. I would say single geography, geographic sourcing reliance on the source of supplies, because any country can have a disaster. We saw floods in Puerto Rico where um, Baxter was unable to supply all the IV bags they would normally, because that was a a central place for manufacturing. We've seen others uh, with drug manufacturers who have a flood or who have unable to supply products. So I think one of the other pieces of this is looking at and asking the question of a secure supply chain supply, and the opportunity to distribute uh, geographically so that you're not solely reliant or so heavily reliant on one country like we find ourselves now. And that's a question many of the global health systems are raising. You know, this is the time to rethink. Perhaps you've seen some manufacturing capacity built locally. So we've seen, you know, automotive assembly transitioning to produce ventilators, we've seen other uh, smaller companies producing face masks, we've even seen kids with 3D printers creating <laughs> facial shields. So so I think the whole issue of sourcing, uh, adequacy of that source, but also diversification across geographies and, and local sourcing, I think has, has also been uh, identified as a key area. Many global health systems uh, we'll now look at carefully and, and consider w- what's a much stronger, more robust supply chain infrastructure we can all be confident in.
0: So much of COVID-19 is scary, but, but one of the most scary moments for me was when U.S. President Trump threatened to hold back 3M mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. five
0: masks made in America from yep. Canada. And in its statement and reply, I found it very interesting. 3M pointed out that this type of action could lead to fewer respirators in the United States uh, due to retaliatory actions. And that was very scary. And I'm sure concerns about retaliation connected to healthcare supplies and food and goods slowed the closing of the border. You know, you were saying diversification of supply. but, But do we just need to manufacture some of these key supplies? like in Canada? Is that, or, yeah. or you know, or, or is diversification a, a good strategy?
1: That's uh, a really good question um, because it all sounds theoretically like a great idea, right? Diversify from multiple geographies. Some health systems of leaders have said we are going to make sure we diversify, but shipping will be a major predictor because we want to make sure we can move product across borders without relying on crossing an ocean. So that's one. But the second one you really identify, which I think is a very significant issue, is the whole issue of global trade agreements and policy frameworks. So when President Trump invoked the U.S. Defense Production Act, that allowed decisions to be made or to directives to move forward that, you're absolutely right, would compromise tremendous Tremendous challenge, create tremendous challenges globally. But what that really raises is um, we need a second look at our procurement policies and those trade agreements that say, you know, procurement in a publicly funded system like ours must be fair, open, and transparent. So to be fair, open, and transparent, you can't give an advantage to your local supplier down the street over and above that global national supplier, perhaps. Because they can give, you know, they, they offer a, a lower price, for example. So if our policy frameworks, like these trade agreements, don't allow health systems to procure from locally available companies, then we're going to compromise those companies' ability to be sustainable in producing new products for health systems that health systems can't procure within po- procurement policy rules that say oh I'd really like to buy these products from that Ontario or Alberta or BC or company but my procurement policy says I have to be fair open and transparent and I can't give any advantage to local companies in making the decision as to who will supply so I think we've got some policy work to do to make sure that countries can feel confident in their supplier network and pipelines, so that when and those pipelines need to be responsive to demand. Um, and we also need to be very, very mindful that supply chain in healthcare is global. It's not unique to any one country. So you look at what people have often I've heard this term once lately, I've heard it many times: the wild, wild west. What that means is there's no coordination, transparency, or agreements to work together and collaborate across jurisdictions within Canada, let alone jurisdictions with other countries. So, so Canada might supply one of the um, component parts of a 3M mask, but under a trade agreement, Canada has to comp- continue supplying 3M, perhaps with that with that product or with that component part, right? So I think, I think we really have to look at that. I don't have a magic answer framework for that, but it's a global supply chain. Global trade agreements and policy frameworks play a significant role. And health system po- and publicly, you know, public uh, funded types of policy frameworks in each province and territory all have to start to now line up. And maybe there are different policy frameworks and models that need to be contemplated for these very significant and unexpected pandemic situations, so that every, every jurisdiction, every um, uh, policy framework allows health systems to collaborate, coordinate efforts, work together so that everyone has access to the product, supplies, equipment they need when, where they need it. But you can't do that unless you are working within policy frameworks to support those kinds of procurement models, and you also can't do that without transparency and data. So you know exactly who has what product, where is it most needed, and how best to have a, a framework that agrees on distrib- distribution uh, to areas, provinces, hotspots, if you will, um, that have the greatest need and uh, for that particular supply. So it, it's quite a complex Uh, framework that's needed, and it's got many moving parts. Um, But in my mind, um, moving towards a much more data-enabled, data-informed system with much, much greater transparency is a very critical first step. And some provinces like Alberta have gone way down that road, and you can see the benefits they've been able to achieve. Other provinces very, very much doing their best, working very, very hard, tirelessly actually, to make sure health workers are safe, make sure citizens and, and high-risk groups are safe, but much, much more challenging, uh, I think, than anyone ever contemplated um, with COVID-19.
0: Yeah, I couldn't help uh, but notice uh, that the CEO of uh, Coca-Cola was celebrating you know, the local production um, of their soft drinks, you know, he was saying, yeah. um, soft drinks for Germany are, are are produced in Germany, and similarly um, in the United States. Now they had uh, some uh, issues with ingredients, and and Unilever, uh, very very similar, um, which which does raise a question of how does supply chain track and tracing have to. Go. So right. we may we know our masks come from uh, 3M in the United States, but Harmac Pacific uh, in the BC, produces a type of pulp that is used by U.S. manufacturers to make right. products that include paper gowns, surgical masks, and caps. Some of which are then are shipped back to Canada. How 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 deep does that track and trace have to go? That does it go? Does any system currently go to the raw material level, and should it?
1: Uh, actually, it does, um, but it doesn't do nearly uh, the what the degree it should or needs to in the health sector. So in almost, and I think it's virtually every uh, business sector, with the exception of health, they have adopted something called global standards. There is one global standard. It's managed by a not-for-profit network in 114 countries called GS1. Sometimes people refer to them as the barcode people. Those global standards mean that you, you can scan that barcode on that box of N95 masks and it will open up and tell you exactly what the component parts of that product are and the sources of them so so global standards makes it possible for coca-cola to say yep that component came from the you know the fruit trees of whatever supplier yeah the agriculture industry does this the grocery the retail the global standards framework and ability to track and trace not only every product but where it come from comes from and what its components parts are has been widely adopted in every business sector it has not been widely adopted in health care sectors, but it is getting there. I'm hoping, certainly, this may be another push and incentive for it to do that. So let me give you an example. If every health system in Canada adopted global standards, there would be one quick barcode scan uh, technology or um, data registry, if you will, that would allow you to know immediately, do those gloves have latex in them? or not, because I have an allergy to latex, and I can't wear them if they have latex, right? It's just like a grocery industry saying, are there nuts in this cereal? Because if you have an allergy, you can't have that cereal. So that global standard barcode or product identification is absolutely needed in every country for that same global supply chain depths of what's in that product where does the where did the component parts come from that made that part product so that you know where your not only where your supplier of the product is but where are the secondary suppliers of the component parts that allows that manufacturer to even make them so the global standards framework virtually every country every business sector has been much slower to be adopted by health systems Europe has as now got a policy framework that will require it of every health product Uh, quite imminently. I think in the next year or two, FDA has done the same. I believe Australia as as well, but that is something uh, Canadian health systems, even at a federal level and provincial level, um, might wish to consider because that gives you the language, if you will, of what the product is what it's made out of, where it comes from, where are the sources that were brought together to create that product, so that you have much greater visibility into your supply chain pipeline and uh, access to the products you need, particularly <clears throat> excuse me, during a, da- a pandemic.
0: Now, with HIMS Analytics, you developed a groundbreaking supply chain maturity tool called the Yes. Health. Supply Information Maturity Management, or HSim, to support healthcare organizations to assess their progress towards a strategic supply chain infrastructure. Now, is a stress test a part of that system, or or what? Or what does that system measure? Now,
1: yeah, that's a, a great question. The, the name of that has recently changed. <laughs> um, funny, uh, with lots of feedback from global partners, it's the Clinically Integrated Supply Outcomes Model. Just so people are aware it's a maturity tool what does that mean that means it's a self-assessment for any health system or organization that will give a quantified numerical score that says okay alberta on a scale of zero you have no supply chain maturity to seven you have best in class best in the world you're a number whatever it is four five six and what that tool is designed to do is give health systems, health system leaders, a strategic roadmap. Where are we today? What, health, what supply chain infrastructure assets are we starting with? And how do we, step by step, improve our supply chain maturity to get to that point where it's absolutely automated deeply integrated to every clinician's work right at the point of care so that clinician knows is this a latex in a glove so i shouldn't use it or or isn't it just as a quick example or is this the right drug for this particular patient based on everything uh, science and evidence shows us so it's a maturity tool that is simply designed to identify here's your strengths here's the areas in your supply chain that are really needing attention, and here are the key outcomes that every supply chain should be able to achieve to get to that high-performing supply chain infrastructure we're seeing in Alberta and other leading global health systems like Mercy in the States would would be another one.
0: Fascinating. Now, uh, one of the bright lights in the healthcare supply chain story has been the quicker adoption of innovation. Um, yes. Historically, right? The healthcare supply chain has been very difficult to penetrate by innovators. Uh, the founder of Blue Dot was uh, on um, a podcast uh, with John Stackhouse from RBC, the RBC Disruptors podcast. You know, talking about you know the difficulty that they were having gaining traction in Canada um, mm-hmm. while becoming an international star. What has your research about innovation adoption in healthcare told you about the the barriers uh, to adoption, and why do you think pandemic conditions have been able to, you know, brush them aside a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. Um, health systems historically have um, very, very much relied on the tried and true. You know, the care pathway says here's the best way to offer care. It's evidence-based. So any technology or, you know, new way of delivering care meets an awful lot of pushback and challenges because it's not part of our evidence-based care pathways that have been identified as, um, you know, evidence-based to get to the best outcomes. What, What health systems haven't been as good at and it's often some of the research would suggest it's a sense of, you know, greater than need. Great In a crisis, you have tremendous needs that you never had before. So you suddenly open up those that thinking that believes we're just going to proceed the way we always have. Because the way we always have is just not going to meet the challenges we find ourselves in in a pandemic. So the example of digital technologies that enable virtual care have been really hard for companies to get adopted. We, It, it intuitively makes great sense to any clinician or to, to any uh, technology company that being able to connect to patients virtually would be a great idea, uh, given that all citizens globally are pretty connected virtually in every other business sector. It wasn't until the pandemic shut down every clinic, every program team, every dental office even, and made it impossible for patients to connect to their care provider teams unless you can do so virtually. So suddenly, the the profound disruption that COVID-19 has had in health systems has opened up a desperation, perhaps even, uh, for finding an alternative because clinician teams know and want to uh, make sure they are continuing to be able to deliver care to patients who need them, particularly patients who have multiple chronic illnesses or quite medically fragile and really do need uh, support day-to-day, week-to-week to, t- to stay healthy and well. So, in, it often is the case uh, in healthcare is we tend not to want to jump to what you might call those very disruptive technologies that completely change the way clinician teams would deliver care. Unless we have a a very pressing situation like a pandemic that says no, no, it's not a choice anymore, it's a it's a must have. I had one health uh, system CEO share with me that, and this was in another in the U.S. uh, On average, up until this pandemic, they were delivering about 1,900 virtual care visits a year. Today, they're delivering 1,900 virtual care visits a day. And future forward now, the question becomes, if that virtual care delivery achieved value and it was achieving all of those quality outcomes that uh, normally an in-person clinician visit would achieve, then one, it begs the question, isn't that a great opportunity for health systems to scale those virtual care delivery models? And, of course, all of the pieces that go with that. How do clinicians need to change the way we deliver care? How do um, reimbursement models work so that clinician teams, hospitals, have, you know, clinics, et cetera, can be reimbursed for them? Uh, the, similarly to an in-person clinic, how do the policy frameworks for quality and safety and accountability now need to shift to accommodate that? So really what this, you know, perhaps... Um, this pandemic has demonstrated is health systems can pivot. They can be very agile and responsive uh, to patient needs. Sometimes it takes extraordinary circumstances like we find ourselves today. Not always, uh, but sometimes. And those are the key lessons learned that I think we need to build into our um, future strategies in health systems to make sure they're not lost and that they do augment and create the capacity that we never had before, quite frankly, in health systems so that in a future maybe wave of this pandemic that many are speaking of, those digital infrastructure, whether it's the supply chain infrastructure or virtual care delivery models, can help us very quickly ramp up the capacity when we're going to need it in future. And most people in the pandemic preparedness world will tell you this isn't going to be the last pandemic we ever see. Uh, building that learning and embedding it and scaling it across our systems uh, so that those key lessons learned don't get, have, we don't find ourselves having to learn them again and again, I think is a very important uh, area of work we all need to be thinking about.
0: So before I let you go, as uh, two Windsorites talking on a podcast,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I, I, I just, I have to ask you, I mean, yes. you've been a nurse and a nursing executive uh, on yeah. both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. Yes. Could you have ever imagined a, a closed border except to essential traffic? And could you have ever imagined a discussion about potentially preventing healthcare workers from crossing the border? I mean, it didn't happen, but even just the fact that there were newspaper articles about it and there were yeah. nurses concerned about it, you know, in your wildest dreams, Anne.
1: <laughs> you know, it's true. Um, it, it, in some ways, it's um, pan- things like the the pandemic uh, we find ourselves in today really highlight and shine a bright light on um Things nursing has been looking at and examining for some time. I mean, we know nursing is a global workforce. Every country, every health system needs a robust, strong, well-prepared, healthy workforce, right? And many times that means workers, health nurses will cross borders. In our case in, in Windsor, I, last I checked, it's approximately 1,600 nurses staff our Detroit hospitals every day. And so we have a great deal of codependency across borders and systems. What we have much less insight into is the collaboration, the planning, the what ifs, the pandemic preparedness models that contemplate movement of care workers across borders. Uh, that's another area. There's no, in, uh, you're right, I, I guess I, I never really thought. Well, I, perhaps I did in some ways because 9/11 we closed borders for very different reasons, and we found ourselves in the same issue where nurses being stuck at work on Detroit couldn't get home, or nurses at home in Windsor couldn't get across that border. So it has been a, an issue top of mind in in border communities like Windsor. Um, what it speaks to in my mind is not the question is not sh- should we you know prevent people from moving across that border. Every health system must have the workforce prepared, educated workforce to uh, deliver care when and how needed, particularly in a pandemic. The question I think we need to be having is how do we build those collaborative, collaborative models, frameworks, plans so that when and if such a disaster of this magnitude and scale compromises a health system on either side of the border. It may be Canada's turn next time. How do we make sure we've got the collaboration, the openness, the agreements, the transparency? Um, Both countries' jurisdictions need to make very strong evidence-informed decisions that offer every citizen, no matter what country they live in, access, equitable access uh, to care in such an environment. So it's another... You know, we've been talking about cross-border in Windsor for many years, and I've talked about the cross-border supply chain <laughs> similarly, Jody, for at least the last four and five years. Um, suddenly now people realize just what, how significant uh, an issue it is, but I see it as a tremendous opportunity uh, as well. And it's not just nurses. We have physicians that go across that border all the time, and I think we we would be well-served to to find a way to make sure both countries, both jurisdictions, health systems, in this case, across the Windsor border, um, have the confidence that they will have the workforce and that workforce has the confidence in their health system that the health system can protect them. We see very different rates of COVID infections among health workers uh, in Michigan uh, compared to Ontario. So it's a credit to Ontario. We have much to offer each other, I would say, um, in really examining the key opportunities here uh, to learn from each other and to ensure that we are both able to support each other through such crisis. it it It's in the heart and soul of nurses to to help and to make sure everybody has access to great health care. So I think it's, you know as an individual, uh, as a nurse, I think that's an area w- we really need to do some work and and focus our efforts on the future and where it can be much improved.
0: Dr. Anston, thank you so much for being such an exceptional clinician and exceptional researcher and for sharing your insights uh, with me today uh, throughout Canada and around the world. You're a national treasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you ever so much for this opportunity. I'm very honored to be part of this very important uh, podcast program, Jody. I am very grateful for your support, so thank you.